and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we're going to get into some things that I love, um, especially just recently coming off my um, Lifetime Fitness Championship game where I lost. I'm 0-5 in the Lifetime Fitness Rec League. I, I am... Uh, it's a whole nother thing. I need to talk to my therapist about it, but I was not able to get my team over the hump. And in my, my professional basketball recreation career, I will tell you that I will just do better to get my team in a better situation where we can play again next year. But today I have none other than James Cadugan. What's going on, my brother? How are you? What's going on, Bakari? Great to see you. and uh, Good to be in touch, man. Yeah, no, you have a really dope job and your career has been something that um, I mean, we, we interview a lot of cool people, but your career is something I can honestly say I'm envious of. And we start each one of our conversations by having our guests kind of walk us through the arc of their careers. And yours has spanned private practice, government, nonprofit leadership, philanthropy, to now your work with the NBA. Can you walk us through your career trajectory from your first job out of law school to now the work that you do? Sure. And, and I appreciate that, man. I, I feel very, very fortunate to be sitting where I'm sitting and to be looking back on some on some uh, really exciting experiences. Uh, but first, thank you for having me on. Uh, real pleasure. Uh, career wise, my uh, I'll even take you back a, a little bit before first job out of law school in law school. Uh, I think like all of us, uh, you go into law school wide-eyed, hoping that it will teach you something about the way the world works, about government, about politics, about how to make decisions, and you quickly find that it does none of those things. Uh, and much as I enjoyed uh, parts of my law school experience, uh, I realized I'd have to try and be intentional about, about shaping my career. And one of the things that, uh, that actually interested me that really changed my whole perspective on how I might move into the legal space and what I might want to do was doing clinical work. And I did a clinic at the time it was called Prisoners and Families and now it's called Mass Incarceration in the Family, I think for the students who are who are coming up now. Uh, but the, back then in the early 2000s, it was an opportunity for us as students before, as baby lawyers, pre-lawyers uh, under the supervision of a professor to go into prisons and provide some support to parents who uh, didn't know that much about their rights uh, and their abilities to contact their kids, their visitation rights, the, their obligations, responsibilities. And our job was to be able to provide some of that, to be able to say, hey, th this is how you stay engaged with your family, even while you're incarcerated. This is what you can look forward to after you get released. And on top of that, we had some opportunities to work with individual clients and help them prepare for parole. And that was the thing that wet my whistle. That was the thing where I said, of all the classes that I have taken, yeah, well, that was interesting enough, I guess, but this one, you could feel the impact because you're right there, even before you passed the bar, got a degree, uh, and actually helping folks with what little knowledge you have at that time. And so that, that's the thing that really uh, lit that spark for me that, you know, maybe this this uh, impact career and working on social justice could be something that I do. So like, uh, every, like so many people coming out of law school, I immediately went into the private sector to try and pay off some uh, law school debt. You got to pay for law school, man. <laughs> you you got to do it. You got to do it. <laughs> Uh, and, and so I spent a couple of years at a firm in New York, but uh, two years into that, by the time I got to 2008, a skinny guy from Illinois decides he's going to run for president. And like so many other people, uh, I, I had to go. I had to go. So uh, started off, uh, left the firm on some vacation time to go to Iowa to the caucuses and got to see that crazy beginning of our political process, then spent the next year or so volunteering uh, as a 
Junior Voter Protection Council uh, running around after the Senior Voter Protection Council of the campaign doing research and whatever she wanted me to do uh, in a couple of different states in the primaries and then uh, move full time into voter protection and co-directed the voter protection program in Ohio um, uh, in 2008 and during the general election. And then from there moved into the administration. And, and that was really, uh, I think everybody has those things where they can see it and they, they hope that it's what, what they, they think it is. And to me, the chance to do campaign work and belly the beast in a battleground state, to do voter protection work and think about giving everybody access to the ballot and then to translate that into a government job was the dream. So I spent eight years in the administration. Oh, you uh, stayed the whole thing, the whole time. Now, let me just for the listeners, most people stay them two years after they get appointed and then they go cash out. I, I don't know what James was doing. He ain't following nobody's plan. <laughs> but let me, uh, the best laid plans I said I was going to be in DC for two years and then just like come back to New York and hang out. No, so I stayed eight years, ultimately met my wife, a sixth generation Washingtonian. So now I'm, I'm DC forever. So, uh, yeah, eight years in the administration, three of those at the Pentagon. Uh, the next five at the Department of Justice, working on civil rights and criminal justice policy, uh, had the privilege of, uh, of overseeing the, the policy section of the Civil Rights Division, and then Attorney General Lynch asked me to join her team, and that was uh, uh, just an incredible run of, of government political policy experiences. Uh, make things very short after that, uh, went and left on uh, on January 19th of, uh, of 2017 with a change of administration. I was like, uh, what happened on January 20th? No, I was I was actually with 44 on January 20th in Chicago at the what was the big uh, was it the and whatever the big con convention center is when he gave his farewell address or maybe it was the 19th. It was one of those days. It would have been like, a, I think a couple of days. It was right right in that space. because I remember yeah. like that, that that was a, a, a gut punch time for yeah. so many of us. But left and uh, and was fortunate to go and uh, join the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and uh, start up their research and advocacy unit, the Thurgood Marshall Institute. It's an incredible yeah. experience with some phenomenal lawyers and organizers and archivists, just bringing together all the tools that we use in our in our trade. After that, went to Arnold Ventures, where I spent time, sort of in a mix of philanthropy and advocacy, which is just a, a really fascinating space and worked with some phenomenal colleagues on how do we get good funding money into nonprofits doing criminal justice work and how do we get good funding money into the advocacy world on legislative priorities on criminal justice and it was uh, three years into that tenure I think that, uh, that this opportunity to, uh, to work for the MBA family came along and being a lifelong basketball fan uh, growing up in the UK, I, I grew up in England, and, and my uh, love for basketball came by way of the Dream Team, 1992, seeing those men do their thing on the world stage before my family moved to the U.S. When, when right before high school, uh, uh, the chance to, to take that lifelong love and combine it with my career passion, that's something you don't say no to. You know, you got a lot of things that I'm going through my head right now and, and putting a bullet point in. One is you got an opportunity to work for Loretta Lynch, who's amazing on so many different fronts. I want to want to ask a question about that. And you also uh, uh, mentioned the dream team. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how Christian Leitner made it on that team. But you may not know the answer to that. And, and you know, I, it, that is what it is. But I think the most crucial question is you talked about your experience with the Department of Justice and the Legal Defense Fund. How do those experiences shape how you do the work you do now at the NBA Social Justice Coalition? So our job 
at the National Basketball Social Justice Coalition is really to be the advocacy arm of the NBA family. And uh, the thing that I think makes us unique and what, what excites me is it's not just about the NBA league office. We are a joint venture of the NBA, the Players Association and the Coaches Association. So we really represent the whole NBA community. And our job is to, to stake out the right policy territory that feels right and consistent with NBA values. And this is really the institutionalizing of a history and tradition of advocacy that NBA players have undertaken for the 75 years that we've had a league. And over the course of that time, dating back to the days of Bill Russell and Kareem and Oscar, uh, we've seen these athletes stand up time and time and time again, generation by generation, for what they believed was right. And now we have a moment in time, historically, where more people than ever are concerned about and connected to social justice. And people realize the power of sports, the power of engagement, the power of civic participation. And to have a coalition that is dedicated to doing that, that was generated in the wake of the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and too many other black men, women, and children to name, uh, that, that's a weight and a privilege that I get to, to help guide some of that work and really support the community from players to team majority owners and governors, coaches, league executives, PA executives, and how do we find the spaces on criminal justice, on policing reform and voting rights where the NBA voice will make a difference. And to bring it back to your question, the reason that I frame it like that is because there's so many different people at the table. That is the same thing that, that I experienced time and again in government, in working for Attorney General Lynch, is that the goal was always to do justice and do the right thing. And that requires a lot of listening, a lot of compromise, and a lot of negotiation before you make the best decision you can and, and try to support at that time our principal and the attorney general and the administration and the administration of President Barack Obama in seeking justice. It's the same principle that applies here, the same principle that applies to the Legal Defense Fund. So I find myself drawing on those experiences every single day as we think about how we want to position ourselves. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder with them to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know, I, I hear you. I actually agree with you and love the work that you're doing. But some of the people that are listening in this kind of post Colin Kaepernick and George Floyd world, um, they're skeptical listeners who see initiatives like what the NBA is doing and the NFL are doing around social justice and see these initiatives as more as PR uh, than they do efforts to fully leverage the potential of predominantly black leagues to actually shape and inform policy. So, you know, for those skeptics, I'm not one, but I got to ask the question, 
What do you say to them about the work you do and how the Social Justice Coalition is doing the type of work led by players uh, that is geared towards systemic change? And I will actually say that although I am a believer, I think that the leagues should be decoupled on this, and I'll let you say whether or not that's the case or not without throwing anybody under the bus. I believe y'all should be decoupled on this, but whatever it may be. So, number one, I understand the skepticism, and it's totally fair. I think everybody has to be judged on the merits of not just what they say. What you say is important, and people judge you on that and should, but also what you do. And for us, the way I like to frame it and what I think is most important is we're thinking long-term and we're in this for the long haul. It's not PR to invest in social justice advocacy and lobbying. It's not PR to make sure that every team in every market, that's 30 teams in 28 markets, have the resources that they need to either begin the community engagement, advocacy and policy work they wanna do. And some are in those nascent stages of figuring out how they wanna position themselves in their market. And some have been off and running and doing incredible work in their backyards. Like think about the, the Bucks, think about Boston and the Celtics United initiative, think about Dallas Mavericks and, and their Mavs Take Action initiative, the Miami Heat and what they've done on policing and voting. There are so many different ways that it is manifested. And the goal for the coalition and how I hope that your listening audience and anybody else who, who sees us and learns about our work judges us is on what are we focused on? We're focused on legislation because we want to see long-term legislative. Yeah. And so many places, and, and you know this from your career and work, shy away from that. And they say, you know what? It is easier to do just one thing. It's easier just to engage with one organization or do a piece of community outreach or give one grant on a particular initiative, but to engage the long game of politics to say, we know structural changes need to be made in these critical areas that in particular have crushed black and brown communities for too long. That's not easy. And that's a newer thing for any corporation, right? So for, for us to do that and to harness that power of a, a league that, that has its success has been built on black athletes who have transcended sports to take that capital and say, we want to create the space for political change. That's, that's a new proposition. And, and so I, I would ask anybody who has that skepticism to take a look at our support for the George Floyd justice and policing act and the lobbying that we did there and, and the, the attention that we tried to bring to it, to look at the freedom to vote act and the John Lewis voting rights act and, and what we did to support there, to look at our current support for the equal act on sentencing reform, to try and make sure that crack and powder cocaine are treated the same under the law and that there isn't a, a racial injustice enshrined into law 40 years long 101 to disparity dating back to the 80s. It was cut down to 18 to one in 2010. Now we need it to be one-to-one -one as it should have been from jump. Those are the kinds of things, and those are just three of the, of the larger federal bills that we're supporting. Our goal is to make sure that we as a community engage policy and engage legislation so that structural change is part of what we do. And, and last thing that, that I'll say quickly on, quickly on this is, that sits alongside all the other work that the MBA community is doing institutionally. We've got the MBA Foundation, which is about doing that grant work over the long haul, a 300 million commitment over 10 years. We've got MBA Cares, which has existed for the better part of 15, 20 years, doing amazing community engagement work. We have to do all those things. And I, and I know you know this, but all those tools need to be in play. Community, I mean, yeah. fund, legislation. And so that's what we're trying to do in the coalition. We're trying to play our part. I mean, yeah, because you got to utilize all the tools in the toolbox. You know, that's that's the most important thing. And that's why 
you know, having an organization like this, particularly for the NBA, which is a uniquely historical, more proactive organization than most, save for James Brown, save for Jackie Robinson, the NBA until the creation of the WNBA was always at the forefront. I mean, the WNBA is, is respectfully head and shoulders running ahead and beyond everybody else. They, they are market too. leaders and what, what they do is unbelievable. I mean, they really set the pace for advocacy in a lot of ways and, and hats off to them. I love them. They're, they're, uh, the the folks that, that I think uh, if you want to take a look at an organization that is punched far, far above its weight, it, it's the, the W. They are just amazing. Let me ask you this question. Um, how does your organization actually work? Um, and that's something that for me even has escaped me. Like if a player calls you and says, I want to find an organization that's going to work on police accountability and reform issues, is your job to help them find organizations that they can donate to? I mean, you hear the conversations all the time. Some people may not. I, I think when I had 44 on my podcast with Bill Simmons, he talked about it. When you're trying to get, when when all shit breaks loose and the Bucks want to talk to like Mandela and Barack Obama, I mean, do they call you? I mean, how do you, when Kyrie Irving is, you know, on his own little kick, I mean, does he call you? I mean, what what is the agree or disagree? The man has 60. He had 41 in the first half. So we're going to figure out a way for him to play. But how do, you, how do you navigate all of this and how does your organization work like tangibly from yeah. I need some shit to get done to yeah. it happening? Yeah, and this is a, <laughs> you asked the, the, this is my favorite question. This is for all the, uh, the, the government geekers and the policy wonks out there who want to know about structure and, and how things move and how the wheels turn. Uh, number one, there are so many relationships and there's so much good work that already exists, both vested in individual players and what they want to do, whether it's in their playing market, their hometown, their college town, uh, those initiatives exist and they're incredible. Uh, and, and our goal is to be supportive wherever we can be, where there is a question. If they're off and running, they, they, they got to go do their thing. And that's, that's phenomenal. Uh, and we don't get in the way. The goal is if they have a question on policy, they've got a question on relationships with, with community-based organizations, they've got a question on legislation, they've got a question on mechanics, they've got a question. We're here to answer those questions and be that, that resource at all times to anybody in, in the cohort and any, any player, any executive, any time across the entire NBA family. So we play that role. Second, we want to stake out our advocacy agenda on behalf of the community. And that, that's one of the trickiest parts, right, is it's a big community a lot of people, but that's why it's a big board. You've got Adam Silver and Mark Tatum from the league office on the board. You've got Tamika Tramalio and her position as executive director of the Players Association on the board. We've got Doc Rivers and Dwayne Casey, head coaches on the board. Then we've got five players on the board and Carmelo, Donovan, mm. Matt, Avery, Sterling. They're all on the board. And so with that that 15-person cohort, like I didn't even mention our Team governors who are critical, absolutely critical. Steve Ballmer, Mickey Arison, Mark Lasry, Vivek Manadive. Like we, we have a, the a, a, an incredible board of governors, Clay Bennett from the Oklahoma City Thunder, who all of whom are committed to justice, all of whom are committed to doing this work right. And our job together, and part of my job day to day to steer is, how do we take positions on behalf of the community? On the issues that we select, how do we decide? And that's where all of that discussion and, and, and the differing political perspectives come in. And when we come out and say, hey, we're going to support the Floyd Act, we support the Freedom to Vote Act, we support the Equal Act, we'll think about policing in states, we're thinking about we pushing it back against voter suppression. All of those things come by way of a process that 
we get together as a group and talk through. I've got plenty of ideas about where we should go and uh, what we should be thinking about, but they are the ones who are steering governors, players, executives, coaches, they are steering what this should look like for the community. So you layer those things together and you really get both a standalone uh, advocacy agenda on justice that we push for the NBA community and also a support service that we provide for all the many and varied advocacy initiatives that are taking place market by market. So I guess the question that people are going to have is like with that collection of voices with issues that are difficult to navigate, I won't mention certain GMs, they're really good GMs, but they just bounce around the league sometimes because of things they may or may not say. How do you necessarily find that balance? How difficult is it with, you know, you have fans, you have ownership, you have these cultural um, pressures. How difficult is it to find that balance with what you want to do with your mission versus making sure that you don't alienate a fan base, making sure that you don't alienate another group? So first and foremost, NBA fans as a general matter are really supportive of social justice initiatives. And, and that's a really comforting thing. But at the end of the day, it's not a referendum and, and the things that we are going to do are going to be because they feel right to our community and they feel right to us and we think they are the right thing to do. And some people won't like them and, and that's okay. But we, we don't sort of take a show of hands from amongst the, the fan base and, and expect that every <laughs> support is going to please everybody. And, and you know this just as well as well as I do. Like sports fans are passionate and they and they That's have an honest really answer. I mean, it's tough, though. I mean, you hear people speak out about certain issues and you see eyes roll or you hear owners or general managers. I was I was talking about Daryl Morey, but you, you see di you see different people make different positions and. For you, you're in a position where you are being arguably the most progressive arm of the NBA and that balance. I mean, how do you take that into account? Is there a veto structure? I mean, or do you all just try to make sure that with the 15 person board, you find that balance in the things you do? It's the latter. And the things that we do, we have an agenda. We have our three issues. We have a sense of where we want to go. But as we move forward, I'm constantly talking to the not just board members, but members of the NBA community to get a sense of where we are. L listening is critical. And this goes back to your initial question about what did I take from my time in the Obama administration, working for AG Lynch, working at LDF? It's you have to be able to listen and then make a decision. And again, those decisions, they're not always going to please everybody. But our goal is really to, to follow what our values are. And the values in our issues start with, like, in policing, we want to see Black men, women, and children live. We don't want to see them die at the hands of police and officer-involved shootings. That's something that, 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 that is our anchor and North Star in voting. We want as many Americans as possible to be able to vote and have access to the ballot. There should be no voter suppression, and we should be able to, to get people to the polls in a way that is free and fair and open. That should be non-controversial. The execution is different, but that principle drives everything. In criminal justice, We've got a mass incarceration problem that everybody knows about now that, that has gotten more attention in the past 10 years than it has in the in the past quarter century. And seeing that momentum, we want to seize upon that and be part of that movement for liberty, for fairness, for justice, while also saying, yeah, we understand that we need law enforcement. We understand why law enforcement exists, but we need to make sure that it's tempered and measured and fair and doesn't punish black and brown communities for no reason. So those Let things- Let me ask you a question though. Yeah. Along the scope of that, you're a 501c4. 
yes. which is, by the way, brilliantly organized. Shout out to your lawyers who allow you the flexibility to do that work. What's the scope of your mission? Just clearly, succinctly. The scope of our mission is to do advocacy on our social justice issues. So that means engaging lawmakers, our systems of government, and bringing people to the conversation around what are the politics on social justice? How do we get laws passed that are going to impact people's lives? That That's what we do. And I said succinctly, and you knocked that out the park. That was, that was actually... <laughs> I'm doing that what was, I can. <laughs> that, was actually, that was actually really good. I just got a couple more questions. Uh a couple more questions before I let you out of here, because, you know, I think that the easiest question is probably um, what can people do to support the work that you do? I mean, how how can people who want to be a part of this, how can league fans, let's say you're a Mavericks fan. Shout out to my brother, Mark Cuban. Mark was one of the first guests I had on the first iteration of my show. Yeah. Shout out to Michael Jordan. We're members of the country club together. Uh, how can we do I mean, if we're fans of the Hornets or Mavs, how can we support the NBA Social Justice Coalition? So first and foremost, get engaged. Like follow us at NBA Coalition is our handle across platforms on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. That's where we do a lot of our aggregation and tell you what we're doing, why we're doing it. It's where we boost a lot of what's happening market by market and team by team. Second of all, follow your team because they are just like running. I mean, seriously, like not just the basketball content and the we are in a in boom times for basketball content and basketball Twitter and IG. Uh, those give me life every single day. But what teams are doing in their social responsibility groups, what they're doing in their community engagement groups, what they're doing locally is incredible. And the more that, that you, uh, wherever you are, whatever city you're in, whatever you, uh, team you're a fan of, trust me, they are doing something that is special and noteworthy on, on justice practice. So like mm. just plug in and learn. The, sec the second piece is, once you are plugged in, then talk to us about what you want to see. Promote the things that are happening market by market. You see a good voting rights initiative, let people know because that matters. Spread the word. You see something that's happening on policing that you think might make a difference, then let people know. That's so incredibly important. And then the third thing really is do what you can where you are. And I think a lot of the advocacy, and again, this has been your wheelhouse for a long time, like people get intimidated and think that they have to, like you hold elect office or, or have exactly. the show to be engaged or like spend all their time like I do thinking about social justice for their job. Not true at all. The participation is in number one, voting, being educated on the issues, and then showing up to a meeting or two. Whatever your pet issue is in your backyard, no matter how small, if you show up, you talk to your elected officials, you talk to your neighbors, you get engaged, I promise you, you will have an impact. And that's what we see on the team side with our teams and what they're doing, players to executives and staff, they get engaged in their communities. The more you get engaged in your community, the more you're going to see what are the things that you can impact that will actually help your family and your neighbors and your friends. That is the real meaning of politics in my view, and, and that's the most important thing that I think people can do. So, you know, one of the things that I have been very outspoken about and I've actually uh, spoken to the vice president's office about it. And I, uh, you know, have spoken to Don Staley about it, who coaches our U.S. women's basketball team. And I think it actually falls somewhat in your bailiwick, not completely. And I understand the balance is Brittany Griner and the lack of attention that we see. You know, I argue if it was DeAndre Jordan, hell, we, you know, we'd see more, we'd see more of it. But tell me what, what, what are the conversations without, without going into detail? Cause I don't want to rock a boat that's above both our pay grades. And we've both been at very high pay grades in our life. And this is above that. But what's the position of the NBA social justice coalition without speaking for the league? I don't want to put you out there, but what are the conversations you all are having about bringing 
arguably, I mean, shout out to Rebecca Lobo, but the most dynamic WNBA female center back from uh, this tragic, horrendous situation. Yeah, I, I will say this, that every resource possible is being devoted to, to getting Brittany Griner home. And the commissioner of the WNBA, Kathy Engelbert, has been uh, That's her top priority. It's her top priority. For for, sure. It's her top priority. And and so I think the most important thing for folks to know is uh, Kathy and her leadership team and all, all of the staff at the W, uh, as well as everybody across the, the broader uh, NBA community, that is priority number one, is bringing her home safely. And so every diplomatic channel is being used and every avenue is being pursued to make sure that she is brought home safe and sound as soon as it's humanly possible. And there's not one single uh, senior leadership conversation I've been a part of where that hasn't been uh, number one. So uh, the uh, deeper dive on that is for, I defer to Kathy and her team, but it is obviously a, a tragic situation we are all deeply concerned and everybody uh, at this organization at the w across the, the nba and basketball families uh, are uh, doing everything they can to bring her home working with every stakeholder congressional government non-government uh, and otherwise well, i appreciate the very thoughtful answer and the real emotional answer shout out james thank you you didn't have to stop by the show i appreciate you stopping by the show of course uh, you know i i will tell you that um, a healthy LeBron James and Anthony Davis is something nobody wants to see in the West, but the Suns are probably the best team in the West. Suns, Bucks, NBA Finals, Chris Paul wins his championship and retires in the sunset. You heard it here first. But thank you for all the work that you do, my brother. I appreciate you, Bakari, for everything you do. Thanks for having us on and, uh, and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Sounds good. Thanks.